1: Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it.
0: Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts.
2: From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program... Can guaranteed income programs offering monthly stipends to households change someone's life? Hope Willensack, Executive Director of the Grow Fund, a guaranteed income pilot program, joins me to talk about it. And we'll also hear from Atlanta City Councilmember Amir Farroki, who's been a supporter of guaranteed income programs. And then... Yes, she is called the Queen of African Music. Grammy Award winner Angelique Kijo talks about creating music in this pandemic, her activism, and why she's looking forward to performing live again. Plus, a former state lawmaker is announcing a congressional bid against Democrat David Scott. All those conversations coming up, but first, there's some breaking news within the hour. As reported by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis says she will seek a special grand jury as her probe continues into former President Donald Trump's pressure to overturn Georgia's presidential election results. Now, last September, I asked Willis about the investigation.
1: Yes, we are still probing it. It's an active investigation. It's one of those 12,000 cases in an unindicted stage um, within the office. It's certainly a case that being looked at, being investigated, people are being interviewed, things are being researched. It's where any unindicted case would be.
2: And what would the charges be if you found something? Conspiracy? Racketeering? I
1: I don't know what the charges will be because we are in the midst of an investigation. What do you think the
2: charges could be?
1: Oh, I, I don't speculate. I'm, I'm trained to look at the facts and the law. Um, I know that people find that case to be interesting because mm-hmm. it was a former sitting president and that has some historic value. For me, um, it's not interesting. What will happen is my team will do an investigation till we are satisfied. We will put the facts that are learned, literally, because I'm old school, up on a wall what those facts are, We will put the statutes that we believe those facts could or could not touch. We will see if the elements of a crime are met. If they are, I will present a case to the grand jury. If they're not, then we won't do it. Um, If you just go back to the basics Mm -hmm. and do what is right, the law will guide you. And so that's what I plan to do in that case. And that's what I plan to do in every case.
2: So now a special grand jury. Let's bring in defense attorney and WABE legal analyst Paige Pate with some analysis. Paige, welcome.
3: Thank you, Rose. Great to be with you.
2: You know, what was interesting about that clip with Fonnie Willis that I played from last September. She said, look, you know, put fa- facts on a wall and we'll determine if the elements of a crime have been committed. Um, let's begin with that. What'd you make of it? Just, and I know that was last September, but although she said it wasn't interesting to her, but it's sure interesting to a lot of people that the president... <sighs> Did the former president of the United States try to, did he commit a crime in trying to get election officials here in Georgia to overturn the results?
3: Right. I mean, obviously, that's what Ms. Willis has been looking at. That's what our office has been investigating. But what I think is happening now is they, they've they run into a dead end. Uh, many witnesses that I think they would like to talk to that are necessary um, for purposes of this investigation have basically said You know, don't call us unless you're showing up with a subpoena. And so in order to get those subpoenas to further this investigation, Ms. Willis has decided, and I think correctly, to request that the chief judge put together a special grand jury, which will have the power to issue those subpoenas and continue the investigation.
2: Seeing that this is a special grand jury, but also jury and also it was cited as being rare in Georgia. What do you make of that? And
3: can you explain that to our listeners? Sure. Happy to do so. It, it is rare to the extent it's unusual. Most criminal cases in Georgia, they start out with a regular grand jury, and that's just a group of citizens from that particular county uh, that meet during that particular term of court. And they hear all of the cases that the D.A. wants to present drug cases, murder cases, sex, assault cases, the whole gamut. Um It is not unheard of, especially in larger jurisdictions where they're investigating a more complicated case, like a public corruption case, Mm -hmm. a racketeering case. In fact, I think Fulton County did this when they were initially investigating the Atlanta public school system. The reason you do it is to take that particular case away from your regular grand jury so they can just focus on the so to speak, run-of-the-mill cases and allow this special grand jury to focus on one case and take as long as they need to. So it's unusual, but this is certainly not the first time it's been done.
2: In this instance process here, is evidence being, does she need to present what she feels is enough evidence for this special grand jury?
3: Okay, well, that's where this grand jury is different from a regular grand jury. A special grand jury doesn't indict anyone. It doesn't return what's called a true bill or a no bill. They don't vote up or down on the case. All they do is allow the DA to continue the investigation. So what they will do is the DA will go in front of the grand jury or one of her representatives and say, we want you to issue this subpoena, that subpoena, this other issue. Maybe we have witnesses testify in front of you to go ahead and capture their testimony. But at the end of that process, whenever it is, there's not going to be an up or down vote on the case. There will be simply a recommendation Mm -hmm. made to both the chief judge and the district attorney as to what charges, if any, should be pursued. And then the DA would have to take it to a regular grand jury to return an indictment if they're going to proceed with the
2: case. And at this point, Paige, if not all of the world, a lot of folks have heard The the Donald Trump on the phone call with Georgia election officials, I want to refresh our minds. Here's part of that call where Trump is trying to persuade Georgia Secretary Brad Raffensperger to change the results in his favor.
4: The people of Georgia are angry. The people of the country are angry. And there's nothing wrong with saying that, you know, uh, that you've recalculated because uh, the 2,236 and absentee ballots, I mean, they're, they're all exact numbers that were were done by accounting firms, law firms, etc. And even if you cut them in half, cut them in half, and cut them in half again, it's more votes than we need. Well, Mr. President, the challenge that you have is the data you have is wrong.
2: Now, Paige, that entire conversation is a little bit over an hour. I don't know if you've heard of it. That was just a snippet. But is this phone call even enough alone when we get to the next phase that Perhaps D.A. Willis might bring charges against the former president.
3: I don't think it's enough alone, and I think that's why Ms. Willis is doing what she's doing. In a case like this where we're talking about interference with an election, intent becomes very important. Mm -hmm. So not only does she need to show that um, former President Trump made this call and made those statements, she needs to get in some evidence of what was his intent. And I think Secretary of State would certainly have some interesting testimony on that issue. Uh, I think if records, phone records, email records can be subpoenaed, there might be additional evidence that would show intent. So I I think, especially if she really wants to move forward with a prosecution, she wants more than just his voice on a phone call.
2: And Paige, in terms again of process, when Willis sends this, disappear to the judge. And then what, how long is there a timeline? If she gets, let's say she gets a subpoena power, then we could be looking at months, you know, I mean, and we're, we all know the former president also has some other legal issues as well. So. <laughs> right.
3: Yeah, no, you know, that, that's one of the advantages of the special grand jury. Uh, they're not going to be released at the end of, of a particular term of court. Um, they'll have the ability to continue until that work is finished. So, Uh, You know, the D.A. may impose her own internal um, time time frame, deadline for that, but there's not one in the in the code.
2: Defense attorney and W.A.B.E. legal analyst Paige Pate with his analysis. Again, the breaking news. Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis says she'll seek a special grand jury as her probe continues into former President Donald Trump's pressure to overturn Georgia's presidential election results. Paige, as always, we appreciate you for taking the time.
3: Thank you, Rose. Great to be with you.
2: All right. Now, some other news. Health systems across North Georgia say they continue to be overwhelmed by the Omicron wave of the COVID-19 pandemic. Officials from a number of major hospitals told reporters this morning, "The situation is as bad as it's ever been in Georgia." Dr. Robert Jansen with Grady Memorial Hospital says, "He walks into the emergency room and he sees quote wall to wall stretchers."
4: This particular variant has been overwhelming to the healthcare systems. We have more patients than we've ever had. We've exceeded our previous peak by over 100. And on a daily basis, we continue to admit patients who are infected with COVID-19. So when you hear that we're not seeing as many severe illnesses related to Omicron, perhaps we're not seeing as much Omicron-related COVID pneumonia, but we are seeing an overwhelming large number of patients who are ill and that is caused by this virus.
2: And many hospital officials say most of their severely ill patients are unvaccinated. Dr. Jane Morgan, who's been a guest on this program many times, is with Piedmont Healthcare. She says a shortage of COVID-19 treatments means doctors are having to make tough decisions about who to treat. If you present
5: to the emergency room and to the hospital, physicians, unfortunately, are in the position of having to triage care. We are in a situation where supply is not available. We now have a variant that has challenged our medical therapeutics such that all of them are not available. And also new therapeutics have not become accessible.
6: Hmm.
2: Data from the Georgia Department of Public Health show the Omicron wave may be slowing, but infections in the state are still at a higher level than any previous point in the pandemic. Voting Georgia election officials are switching vendors for the state's voter registration system. They say it could mean shorter lines during early voting thanks to a faster process for finding voter information. Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger announced the rollout of this new system yesterday. Our team realized that we needed a faster, better, friendlier, and more secure system. We understand it's a big lift. hasn't been done since 2013 But looking at the system we have and the systems that are available, we need to make this change and we need to make it now. And we all know that some recent elections have seen long lines during early voting. Raffensperger expects local election workers will be ready to use a new system in time for the primaries on May 24th. Now, speaking of elections, there's a new candidate seeking to unseat Georgia Democratic Congressman David Scott. It's former state Senator Vincent Ford. And guess what? We have him on the line. He joins me now. Senator, thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it.
4: Thank you for having me, Rose. All
2: right. Here's a question. Why are you now running?
4: Uh, because I think it's time for a change in the 13th uh, Congressional District. Uh, you know, we need someone who's present and progressive. Uh, you know, I have a reputation while I was in office of being uh, available to my constituents uh, when I talked to people in 13th District. They tell me they have not seen uh, the uh, sitting congressman. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm going to be present, but I'm also going to be progressive. Uh, I'm not a blue dog Democrat uh, as the sitting congressman, is a conservative Democrat. He's. I am a progressive Democrat. I'm a Democrat uh, that is uh, the kind of uh, congressman or the kind of uh, Democrat that uh, the 13th district uh, is. You know, the 13th district is a Democratic district. We ought to have a real Democrat as a uh, as the Congressperson. Uh, when you, you say know, folks
2: I, have said to you they haven't seen Congressman Scott, by the way, no relation. Uh, what do you mean? Where where have they not seen him? What are they, they telling?
4: They have not you? seen him. They haven't seen him in the district. Mm-hmm. They haven't seen him. Uh, you know, at community meetings and other meetings, you know, so he's not present. I will be present. Mm -hmm. Uh, but you know, beyond that, uh, beyond the fact that people tell me he's missing in action is the idea, uh, uh, you know, his record, how he votes, Mm -hmm. what he does. He was selected by a very respected ethics watchdog organization as one of the 25 most corrupt congressmen uh in the united states
2: no now, now uh, wait, wait, wait a minute now when, when was this
4: uh this was uh in uh 2007 he and you're bringing selected. this up like,
2: okay but let's let's okay is that fair to bring that up this is 2022 did you, well, did, you did you say anything back I think,
4: then i think it's absolutely fair. did
2: you say anything uh, back then you know dave you know congressman scott
4: I know Congressman Scott very well, and what I do know is that the 13th congressional district deserves someone who doesn't have that designation as one of the 25 most corrupt congressmen in the United States. Well,
2: and you've had uh, you've had alleg- needs- okay. Let's let's be fair about this because you, mm-hmm. you you yourself have run into some issues, including with the uh, obviously former mayor Kasim Reed and allegations there. But the bottom line for you no, is that I- you you. Hold on. Let me get my question, no, th- question out, uh, Senator okay. Ford. Let me get a right. question out. The bottom line is you are seeking to to unseat Congressman Scott because you feel mm-hmm. it's time for change and someone to be seen, and you're progressive. Bottom line.
4: Mm-hmm. That's right.
2: And Would that be your message?
4: Well, that that's going to be part of my message, but I don't think it's fair for you to put my name in the same sentence as Christine Reed.
2: You were. It was the story. It was the story. I mean, it's not fair. It was a story. You, you, you. Well, your name was in. There was an issue with you and Mayor Reed, and he. Y'all went back and forth. The point I'm trying to make is that.
4: No, no. If if people, Reed, Reed is not an issue in this race. Well, you, really you, you brought up something fair, from
2: Rose. you brought up something from 2007. You, My point you, is, you just, you're bringing up you something from up 2007. Vague, you brought up is a vague... Is that fair? No, it's not vague. Yes, it is fair. But no, it's you, not vague.
4: You just brought up a vague reference that uh, was out of context. I mean, you need to tell people what you're talking about. But the fact of the matter is, this is about whether or not David Scott, the sitting congressman, is uh, the appropriate person to represent this district. And I, I asked
2: you, I asked you, if this is from 2007, <laughs> this the, what you're bringing up, and this is 2022. You didn't say anything back in 2007.
4: Listen, Rose, I'm bringing it up now. The I'm not, run, I wasn't running against David Scott in 2007. I'm running against him now. That's the reason. But Rose, his problems didn't end in 2007. I mean, he's playing footsie with all kind of predatory lenders, payday lenders. And so we're going to bring this information out so that the public will know uh, what's going on. But uh, I don't think it's fair to uh, characterize his problem as confined to one year or the other. But
2: you These just did. Problem.
4: You just did. so a problem. It's okay. a problem.
2: You, Let me you are running. You are running. To unseat Congressman Scott, I wanted to give you an opportunity to tell people why you were running, and you've done so, and we appreciate you taking the time.
4: Former State Senator
2: Vincent Ford, thank you so much.
4: You're very welcome.
0: Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org.
2: The concept is called Guaranteed Income. Now, it's estimated since 2018, 20 Guaranteed Income pilots have launched in cities and counties across the United States. And basically what happens is that families and individuals will receive anywhere from maybe $300 to $1,000 a month, depending on the program. And it's designed to help people move from one financial state to another. Now, the Georgia Resilience and Opportunity, or Growth Fund, is set to launch, but with a focus on Atlanta here in Atlanta women. And recently I spoke with Hope Willen Sachs. She's the executive director of the Grow Fund. And also Atlanta City Councilmember Amir Faroqi because he's been a supporter of these guaranteed income programs. And here's a bit of our conversation as Hope begins describing what their fund will do.
6: By guaranteed income, we mean um, recurring payments to members of a community for an ongoing period of time. So the the GROW or the Georgia Resilience and Opportunity Funds uh, In Her Hands program will provide an average of $850 a month for 24 months to program participants in Atlanta, starting in the old Fourth Ward neighborhood and soon to spread across in 2022 to sites across the state. So we're excited. It'll be one of the largest guaranteed income programs in the country and certainly the largest focused on Black women.
2: Yeah, we'll talk more about that in just a moment. Council Member uh, Mayor Farroki, you and I had a conversation not too long about this where you were talking about this type of program coming to Atlanta, but I want to get your thoughts. you care to add anything about when we talk about income, these these type of programs, and also follow up with what people tend to get wrong about a program like this.
7: Yeah, thank thank you, Rose. And thank you for having Hope and I on your show today. Uh, I want to take a step back, if I can, just quickly. You know, I represent six neighborhoods on the city council, one of which is the Old Fourth Ward. Mm -hmm. That neighborhood, which I live in, and uh, I I think you live in as well, um, it's seen remarkable changes over the last two decades. And so the genesis of this work came from really observing that there's just Uh, a significant amount of entrenched poverty in the neighborhood. We have the largest community of Section 8, uh, so housing-assisted residents in the American South. 46% of Black residents live making less than $25,000 a year. So once I took office and even before, I mean, I think that this notion of um, economic insecurity was front and center, both visibly and and from a policy perspective. Uh, And so uh, we've seen cash transfer guaranteed income programs um, pop up around the country, as you mentioned. I think one of as as a way to create kind of an income floor some basic security uh, some peace of mind that allows you to make really good decisions for your career for your kids uh, for yourself Um, you know i think one of the misconceptions the most common misconception is uh, probably rooted in this american individualism that most of us have which is uh, if you're giving people cash that somehow they won't work but i always say in response to that if someone gave you 800 bucks a month or 500 bucks a month would you would you quit working and the answer inevitably is no, it's not enough to, to quit working on, but it's meant to create a sense of security so that um, we all make better decisions and, and can, can do more for ourselves and our families. Hope, what do you think that
2: through your lens, people probably have a, either they get wrong through your lens or you get the most questions about when we talk about a guaranteed income program.
6: Absolutely. Adding on to what council member Feroke described, most people Think have questions about how the money will be spent and sort of why the focus on black black women. I think that it is a pervasive misconception that folks who are experiencing economic insecurity have made poor choices, and it's not the result of uh, poor policies that have been failing people for far too long. The majority of Americans can't afford a $400 emergency. And we know that those this economic insecurity and growing wealth divide is concentrated in communities of color. It's concentrated among women. And so really a program like this is acknowledging the deservedness of all of us to leave a, live a decent, dignified life. It's acknowledging that currently, our economy is failing lots of different groups of people, but the most acute impacts. Are, are, are faced by various groups, among them being Black women. And so instead of looking for, we need really solutions, policies, programs, that are, change, that are bold, that are changing the paradigm, that are taking a new approach to these really entrenched problems. We're never gonna see progress if we continue to do the same things. So we're excited that this program is gonna generate not only greater economic stability for the uh, 650 women who will participate, but also incredible policy and program learnings that hopefully will have a wider impact and change the paradigm on how we think about economic insecurity.
2: And either one of you can tackle this first, because this concept is not new. I mean, this is something that's been around for at least 50 years ago. Amir Farroki, Councilman Farroki, you've always talked about, and I believe, hope this is even on the, the your organization's website. You make the link here to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And, and Dr. King calling for a guaranteed income in order to help deal with issues of systemic economic injustices as well as racial injustices as well. Either one, or you can tackle that. So
6: it, is, it is fitting that this it, exactly this is a potentially a bold idea, but it is not a new idea by any by any means. This has been an idea that has been around for some time, and one of its great biggest advocates was Dr. Martin Luther King in his final book, Chaos or Community. King called for a guaranteed income. He called it the simplest approach that would be the most effective to to solve poverty. Um, and so, even then, it was a widely discussed discussed measure that King was sort of Putting his his uh, support behind, and so it is fitting that this person in this neighborhood, the Old Fourth Ward, of course, where Dr. King was born, where he pastored Ebenezer Baptist Church, where he and credit today are buried. This really this neighborhood that is an icon of racial and economic justice in Atlanta, across the country. That in this neighborhood we have the largest concentration of Section Eight housing in the Southeast, juxtaposed to million dollar newly constructed homes. And so, what does this inequality in this neighborhood and the history here charge us to do? And so, I think that was really the backdrop and that call to action that King laid forth back in 1968 have really called us into this work and drove the community-driven task force that Council Member, council member Feroki put together that really recommended this program and recommended the focus focus on Black women, but certainly this concept um, has been around for some time, and we're excited that it's finally getting traction and that it can return to its roots in this specific neighborhood, both given the historic trends and ongoing trends.
2: Councilmember Faroqi, what's your response to someone says, well, how is this different from some type of welfare? And have you had that question before?
7: Yeah, that's a great question, Rose. Uh, so I, what's interesting is that the concept of a guaranteed income or cash transfers uh is find support on both sides of the aisle, whether liberal or conservative, um, for for various reasons. But, um, you know, it's, however you want to define it, I I think there's a, there's, for most of us, there's a common understanding that we all benefit when folks are doing well, when folks Mm -hmm. um, are able to pursue a career uh, that they want to pursue. Um, They're not running from job to job every six months, um, which creates stability and allows folks to take care of their children and, and their elders. Um, we all benefit from that, whether you're in a, uh, a vulnerable economic position or not. And so uh, the notion of providing folks with an income floor, our most vulnerable residents and neighbors with an mm-hmm. income floor, um, has enormous societal uh, and economic impact for all of us. And so there's, there's, I think, an interest we should all have in making sure that the least of us um, oftentimes generationally disadvantaged for a whole host of reasons that Hope hinted Hope at earlier. Uh, is is good for us all. And I, I will note, you know, I think what's interesting is liberals support it because of um, you know uh, I think the the kind of racial economic justice, kind of basic income security uh, that that I think a lot of folks believe in. And on the right, folks support it, and I don't always agree with this, but they, they support it as a, as a substitution for a lot of the social programs that exist. It's actually more efficient and less bureaucratic if you just give people cash rather than having a food stamp program or a housing program. Mm-hmm. And there's a robust debate as to whether it should be replace something like that or um, be supplemental. But uh, you know all of that is rooted in this notion that we need a social safety net because for too many Americans, no matter how hard you work, no matter how many jobs you have, Uh, it's harder and harder to make ends meet. Uh, And that's especially true for black and brown Americans. And so um, this is a concept that is, again, not new. It's been around for centuries. You see countries and states uh, have implemented some aspects of guaranteed income. And uh, I think I thought early on is if we can't experiment with this at the local level, the most agile form of government, um, then we really aren't doing our work. And I, I will note there's no public dollars engaged in this program. All the funds for this program have been raised through private philanthropy and individuals, both locally and around the country.
2: And that's what I want to get, get into, because Hope, with this in her hands, an initiative of the Grow Fund, you all, how much money have you all been able to raise? You said you're launching a $13 million guaranteed income program for black women in Georgia. That That's a lot of money. How much do you actually
6: have? Yes, so great question. We've currently raised about twelve million, and so we're looking to close the gap on that final final million, and we're excited that it will be one of the largest programs in the country, as I mentioned previously, and certainly the largest focused on black women.
2: Well, let's um get into some questions here about the program because why why focusing solely on black women?
6: Absolutely. This largely came as a a recommendation from the old fourth board economic security task force. When we began this work, we really were looking into the root causes of economic insecurity. And of course it's pervasive, felt across many groups, not only in Atlanta, Metro Atlanta, but across the country. Metro Atlanta has, has the, the lowest economic mobility of any city in the country, some of the most entrenched inequalities. some of the most entrenched poverty rates. And yet, even among that, we saw that Black women were, because of systemically created inequalities, both historic and ongoing policy choices, Black women were really facing the brunt of that. And yet, in spite of that, We talk to black women, we talk to members of the community, they're incredibly resilient and resourceful with what they have, but we set up system that we have systematically created inequality. So for example, black women are on average paid 63 cents on the dollar Mm -hmm. uh, compared to white men. They're twice as likely to live in poverty as compared to white women in Georgia. They face, face a really high risk of being stuck in poverty. And so guaranteed income could be a particularly powerful tool to combat some of these wealth and wage inequalities and provide an income floor for a community that for far too long policies have really have really marginalized and skipped over this group.
2: And, and hope someone listening says, well, are we talking about women who may women with children or just if you are a, a black woman and you are, you figure into this the low income category because you, you, they can't apply. You all are specifically targeting in certain communities. Is that correct?
6: Yes, that's correct. So eligibility for the program will be dependent on living within a specific region. As we mentioned, the launch site will be in the Old Fourth Ward, but we'll be expanding to Southwest Georgia and some um, suburban Atlanta areas as well. And then it'll be a combination of where where one lives and then their income as well. And um, eligible participants do not need to be a parent. So child status um, uh, is not relevant for participation.
2: And as you know, and, and obviously Councilmember Farroki knows, because a zip code, you know, the zip code, you, you can have on one side of the street, as he mentioned earlier, a million dollar townhomes, and across the street, you have folks who are not living in that type of, of residence. So, how are you going to, how will you be able to get this information, invite these folks to, are you going to go door to door? Are you using census data?
6: Yeah, sort of. Sort of all of the above. We'll be going door to door in a lot of communities. We'll be working really closely with community partners that have relationships within the communities that 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 we're operating, and really looking at this as a community-based effort. And then, of course. Um, yeah, talking to folks one-on-one about their potential eligibility, as well as mailers within within certain subsets of eligible zip codes. If the whole zip code is not potentially eligible,
2: because you look at some other areas, some other communities, you look at the, the some on the west side and some neighborhoods over there, obviously Southwest Atlanta, Southeast Atlanta. Uh, will those c- communities, those populations, also be participated? Women in those p-
6: communities be allowed to participate? Right now, the program is focused on the Old Fourth Ward neighborhood, some areas in southwest Atlanta, and then some areas on the the south side of, of, of the metro Atlanta area, and so we know that this need, this program even given its scale, even though it's going to be one of the largest programs in the country, we know it is a drop in the bucket compared to mm-hmm. the problem. And so we really are excited when there are more programs launching, when there are sort of more dollars invested in this work. And we hope that this this launch is actually a launch pad for other similar work that can happen across our city and across our state and even the country.
2: The voice you hear is Hope Sachs She's the Executive Director of the Georgia Resiliency Opportunity Fund. And I'm also joined by Atlanta City Councilman Amir Faroki And we're talking about, Guaranteed Income Program and hope I want to stay with you for a moment because I think a lot of listeners have questions here because I get the emails how do you determine what metrics do you use to determine how effective this is is doing in terms of helping in this case we're talking about black women and obviously do you are you asking them to provide how they're spending the money how do you determine how much a woman will get those I mean I think those are fair questions
6: Yeah, absolutely. So the program design itself, um, the $850 a month on average, in addition to the 24-month duration of the program, was designed in coalition with community members themselves. And so we both did a ton of research. On, on an amount that would be significant enough to hopefully help help move the needle, substantially increase folks' income, and also was something that we could feasibly make happen. Um, and so the $850 a month in 24 months, the duration of the program is was really developed in coalition with community members. And we know lots of programs across the country are, are doing 12 months. We're super excited to be able to do 24 months, um, knowing that doubling that length of time will just hopefully increase one's economic stability. And so that's how the the program design was really developed and we think it's very important that community members themselves have a say in those most impacted by the problem should have the most power over those solutions. So that is a huge, a huge component of this work and, and in our program design and even the recommendation for a guaranteed income program itself um in terms of the policy in terms of the learnings from this program um we're interested in in a bunch of different things um from economic financial stability or volatility, how does this help people smooth their income over time? And how does a smoother income help to improve any number of outcomes? We know it is really hard to plan for one's future, to plan even midterm goals, when you're constantly worried about how you're going to pay rent and put food on the table. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, oftentimes managing multiple jobs. And so we're really interested in financial stability and volatility, we're interested in an emotional well-being, physical well-being, not only for program participants, but their families and communities. Individuals often experience Cash shortfalls; those have ripple effects across entire family units, entire communities, even entire zip codes. Um, So, we're also interested in investment in in investment in children, agency over the uh, program participants' future, and even sort of civic and community engagement. If one has more time, are they able to be more engaged in their community? Finally, um, how will program participants spend the money? We won't be. Program participants are free to to spend the money how they know know is best and to meet the, the needs of their life. We know people are masters of their own experience and so program participants, really, this is meant to give the agility and flexibility for participants to really spend the cash how they know is best and how it's going to help best them move forward.
2: But how will you collect that information? Are you going to ask them to volunteer how this extra 850 has been, which is the average you just mentioned, has been helping them? Because I imagine you need to have some sort of, uh, of information that you all can use to assess the effectiveness of this.
6: Yeah, we ha- we have a an incredible evaluation team at Appalachian State University led by Leah Leah Hamilton, who is going to lead the evaluation on the components that we just measured. Uh, participation in that evaluation is completely voluntary for program participants. This program is truly no strings attached. So if they choose to participate in the evaluation and in those surveys and interviews, that is completely up to them. And then on, on the back end, we'd ask, we'd ask folks to maybe self-report. We also, this program, some of the core principles are based on agency see trust and the dignity of the individual that right now folks who are receiving any type of assistance usually live under pretty strict guidelines and pretty heavy surveillance that actually make it tougher to get ahead and so we want to make sure that our program doesn't perpetuate any of that and actually works to debunk a lot of it and respects people's agency and humanity in the process.
2: That conversation with Hope Woolensack. She's the executive director of the Georgia Resilience and Opportunity Fund, also known as GROW. And also we heard from Atlanta City Councilmember Amir Farroki talking about a guaranteed income program for black women in certain Atlanta neighborhoods. You can find that entire conversation online at WABE.org slash Closer Look. We're back in a moment. The song is Flying High. That is why it's so great about being the host. I get to pick the music. Closer look continues here on 90.1 WABE, Amplifying Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. So glad to be finishing today's show with this next guest. And right now you all are about to be amplified by a global creative known as Angelique Kijo. The album is Mother Nature. But there is so much more beyond her voice. She's been called the queen of African music, named among Time magazine's 100 most influential people of 2021. They they left me off, but that's OK. And also there is a must read as fellow artist Alicia Keys pens an amazing snapshot of about Angelique Kijo. You have to check it out. So currently on tour and will be performing at the Rialto Center for the Arts this Saturday night. But she's making time for little old me. Anjali Kijo, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you, Rose, for having me with you. you know, Your
5: smile is just my day up. Ooh.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I'm going to use that in a promo. You know, when I was reading um, what Alicia Keys had to say about you and teaching her to dance and feeling the music. And when you hear fellow artists give you all those very well-deserved accolades, what goes through your mind?
5: What goes through my mind is uh, celebrating our kinship, our shared humanity. And even though story have pushed us apart through o- between, I mean, ocean, mm-hmm. we still prevail. we still here and we're still doing what we need to do, and we're doing it right. So for me, it just makes me stronger, humbler, and ready to hit the stage anytime, especially coming to Atlanta. Guys, ladies, bring your dancing shoes. (laughs) You know,
2: it's great to hear you talk about being able to hit the stage. Of course, we're all still dealing with this pandemic. How has this altered you the last two years? How have you been doing through
5: all of this? It has been difficult. It has been difficult because I'm a very tactile person. I like to touch people. And during my show before COVID, I'll go into the public, that's my favorite moment where I go and high five the public, Mm -hmm. be with the public, invite them on stage for us to have this unique experience of being linked together through music. And um, I have to shift that. And looking forward that this will happen again pretty soon, that we can hug. We can be there for one another physically, not virtually anymore. Virtual is a good thing. It keeps us in contact, but there's nothing better than being with somebody and hold you tight when you need that squeeze. So it's been difficult for me that like, that I love people and I love hugging people, but I'm, I'm being patient because we all have to be patient until mm-hmm. we can safely hug one another. When did you feel it was
2: a right? It was right for you to get back and, and tour and hit the stage. And it's it's unlimited. It's not like you know you're you're really spacing yourself in between cities, or or are you hitting it city after city like you normally would do?
5: No, I'm spacing myself, and the thing is, I would not have been able to go back if I was not vaccinated, fully vaccinated, because I have to protect myself and protect my musician and the public. I mean, if there's no more public, you cannot play. So you can't just be playing around with people's health because of this pandemic that is lingering on. And for me, music has given me the strength of seeing light at the end of the tunnel. And I know for people, it's very hard. It has been the third lockdown was the one that hit me the most because I'm like, Mm -hmm. we can't go on like we You're not made to be caved. We are made to be out there and going about our business and meeting people we don't know, meeting the one we love. And music has been the force that drive me to believe that tomorrow's gonna be better. And we have to believe it's gonna be better. Each one of us have to do its share for us to come together and play music and bring our kids to school, bring them to the park, and have fun.
2: You recorded Mother Nature during this pandemic, and I'm curious about your process. I always love to ask creatives about their process, whether it's composing or writing. And did the pandemic, was uh, some of this, and and we're all dealing with this, but
5: you dealing with this, was that? uh, did it prompt you to write some new music too? I mean, I think the lockdown, the positive thing that it brought to me is uh, the sense of no deadline to finish what I'm doing. But writing songs has always been a a solitude thing. you got to do it yourself. I mean, the inspiration is there and you got to catch it and drive it and keep the truth of it and the essence of it. Mm -hmm. And this album, what it has allowed me to do is to have the luxury of sitting home and being in conversation with all those young artists for us to do things being safe. The technology has been great. Working with Earth Gang from Atlanta and me being in Paris was one of the, the magic of this technology. I mean, there are good things about technology and we use the best of the technology to keep in contact, to do this music that we hope when I lift people up, people up, listen to it and just have fun. And the thing that is really interesting is that it has been nearly zero carbon footprint album. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all have to do our share to protect Mother Nature. We owe we owe it to her because without her, I don't know where we're gonna be. I don't have any ambition of going to live in March. On March. No way. I'm staying here.
2: <laughs> gotcha.
5: <laughs>
2: you know, I, I do wanna shift for a, shift for a moment because and this is this is just me being the host and the tribute that you did to the wonderful legend celia cruz um simply titled celia um a late cuban singer it was just amazing i loved it it was released in 2019 i'm going to play a little bit of it <laughs>
5: How special
2: was Celia Cruz for you?
5: I mean, Celia Cruz was the first female salsa artist that I met. Really? Because till then, it's only men that do. I mean, come on, show me a salsa band with women that are really know. Nah, you, you,
2: you got me there. You're right. You got I me mean,
5: there. She's the queen of salsa for a reason. She drives the guy, and the guys follow And when she raises her hand, she knows what she's driving them. And she taught me at that moment, when I was in Benin looking at her on stage, I'm like, really? I mean, when you are a woman, you can do anything you set yourself to do. Why should you put any barrier and only, and nothing is gonna stop me from doing whatever I'm gonna do. Because if she's able to play salsa and having Johnny Pacheco playing everything behind, I'm going for it.
2: (laughs) Who are your other influences? Curious. What? Who are your other influences? I'm curious. you don't want to go there it's a long story
5: it started with the traditional musician in my country Mm -hmm. my mom my dad both of my grandmother were strong women independent and they taught me that if i want to do something i gotta do it fully and be happy about it and let people speak if they don't like it it's their problem (laughs) and and then music of course you have aretha I mean, as a young little girl, she was one of those first black women that come in with the, with her dress, sitting in front of that church. "Mary, don't we be," remember that song? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Ooh, Ooh, and it la, started, la, yeah. La,
2: la. Gospel. I mean, listen. Most of our our, our legends will tell you they start they started singing in the as they say the church. They don't say church; they say yeah. the church. They started singing in but the it's church.
5: The, it's the best school ever because gospel. When you're singing gospel, you there's no place you can hide to. It's got to come out. It's your guts. You can't be singing the gospel and, and think, thinking to yourself, I have to keep this for myself. Nah, I Ain't going to happen. You just got to let it out or you're out. <laughs> Take the door of the church and go out. <laughs> we- and she does that with so much. Uh, it looks effortless when she's doing it. And you can hear everything that you need to hear in... Uh, It's just crazy the way she does her singing. I'm like, oh, this lady is (laughs) one of a kind.
2: When you think back to the very first time you started performing live, and like now you're a legend, you're a veteran, do you still get any of the nerves? Do you still have that same process of getting ready to hit that stage?
5: Well, the first time I was on stage, I was not ready. My mom pulled me from under the costume of a theater piece put the dress on me, shoveled me on stage, and I was like, oh. <laughs> and then she didn't even come and save me. So I'm like, okay, I'm just gonna sing. And I sang, I sing my song, bla, 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 bla. And then I go back, run out of the stage, and my mom said, you gotta go back, people are clapping. I said, uh-uh, I am going back. <laughs> I'm old, done. How old were you? Six, <laughs> I was six years old. I can still hear my bones shaking like nobody else. I'm like, I ain't going back there, hell, no. <laughs> and then the next day I woke up, I told my mom, I went to my mom, and said, Mom, that feels really good. Don't you think so? Mommy said, you telling me this? I told you to go back yesterday, you said no. I said, but now I'm ready. Um, it's too late. So I said, it's too late. You got to wait another time.
2: That six-year-old Angelique to now, you you've mastered the stage a little bit better now, haven't you?
5: Oh yeah, I love being on stage. I always say to people, if being on stage feels a little tiny, tiny bit of being in paradise once you go and then you and you under God's wing. Oh, the day I die. I'm gonna I'm gonna serenade God with all the artists that have come before me. We're gonna put a party, he won't be able to sleep for days.
2: <laughs> you um do you ever think about slowing down or
5: you know? Oh, well, I slow down when my body slow down. As long as my body can carry me and my spirit is, my spirit is still up, I'm going to continue singing, being an activist for women's rights, women's empowerment, young girls going to school, not being married, and for our shared humanity to be more celebrated and for us to live in more fair society with, with less discrimination or none at all.
2: And, and I think it's appropriate to end our conversation talking about your activism. You have been so vocal, not just lending your words, but you are active. You're in so many efforts and working with UNICEF. This is so important to you.
5: It is important to me because, I, as I said, especially women in Africa are the backbone of that continent. And if you take a step back, there's no society that can survive without women. So why are we the one paying the price of not having access to finance, of not having access to what we deserve? The men cannot survive with us. The society cannot survive with us. With us. Yet we are perceived as hands out. No, we don't need that. We just need to have access to finance equally to men. And we're going to invest differently. Women have a different vision about the world because our our focus is always how do we prepare the future of our children? We have to send them to school. We have to have them good health, good food, and we have to save money for the hard times. And we reinvest all the time. It's not just make, about making profit. Making profit is part of it, but mainly is the survival of our family, the well-being of our family that is at the center and the core of what we do. So, therefore... I think any government that wants sustainable sustainability should think about women empowerment financially in any different ways, in many different ways.
2: When the little little girls, the little bitty ones come up to you and they say, and I know they've said it, Miss Angelique, I
5: want to be like you. I want to be like you. Well, it happens to me, actually, with one artist from South Africa that remind me that is Shoma Josie. And... When I saw her, she was 12 or 13, and she came with her father to my show, and then she said to me, when I grow up, I wanna be you, but I don't know if I can. I said, that second phrase, you have to take it out. Mm. Just go for it. Just take your wings and fly high. Don't let anyone stop you. If you wanna be like me, you gotta be courageous. You gotta be true to yourself. You gotta be bold and do what you love. Don't let anyone stop you. People will criticize what you have to do, but know that criticism is good for you to be alert. You take what you want about it, and you do what you want after that. Be free.
2: I'm going to take those words and put them up. I'm a big girl. I'm going to take those words and put them up on my wall. Anjali Kijo, you're going to be performing at the Rialto Center for the Arts this Saturday night. Thank you so much for taking the time. Made my day. Thank you so much. And our listeners, thank you so much.
5: Thanks for listening and thanks for having me and then see you Saturday.
2: Absolutely.
5: body like a bird.
2: And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our senior producer is Sam Whitehead. Our other producers are Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razell. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. And remember, you can always send me your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of this fantastic conversation, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 and in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott.
5: Full set my confusion and struggle Lost in the dark, you might listen to me Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state,
2: national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need